Well, welcome. It's so good to see you all here this morning. One of my highlights of the week is spending time with God's people. Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be for this morning. The theme is joy. So I want to back into the theme this morning by suggesting to you that one of the cures for much of our challenge in life is getting a biblical theology of joy. I want you to imagine that you're sitting with a friend who is commiserating over sorrows in their life. Perhaps it's in their family life and, and things are unraveling and painful. And they ask you to help. But one of the challenges we have when people ask us to help, especially in family situations, is you're often not talking to the person who has much control. The cause of pain is often not the person who is seeking relief. And even when it is, often they don't even know they're the one causing the problem. Or perhaps you're speaking to a young mother whose child is incredibly sick and you're trying to offer comfort. How do you give comfort when you are not a medical doctor and maybe there is no medical solution to the sorrow this person's going through? If you were to turn it around, imagine a, a young girl is speaking to you and she is bubbly and excited because she has just found the man of her dreams. And your heart begins to fill with a little bit of anxiety as you recognize that this person is putting so much hope and so much confidence in their marriage. There is no way either the man nor the marriage relationship itself can sustain that type of hope. And you know it'll be only a few short years before she is returning back to you and saying, help, my marriage is not all that I want it to be. I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy. It might surprise you to know that joy is mentioned more times in the New Testament than grace by almost double. It's a word that disappears as we slide by it reading our Bibles. The Apostle Paul constantly calls his reader to have joy, to pursue joy, to express joy. He commands it multiple times in his letters. He says, be joyful again and again. I believe it's over 160 times the Apostle himself commands appeals to or pleads or prays for joy for the readers of his letters. So what exactly is joy? What does Scripture expect of us? How do we pursue it? I want to look in Philippians chapter 4 with you. The apostle is rounding out his letter. He's beginning these kind of summary exhortations that are very practical. He's built theology. He's explained his situation. So this letter has done a lot of work. And now as he kind of brings it to its conclusion, he lands on several applications that are essential as he kind of ties a ribbon on this letter and gets ready to send it off to the Philippians. Look with me in Philippians 4. This will be our entire focus of this morning, just this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, you have heard it said before, I'm sure, that if you see something repeated twice, it's probably pretty important. If you were to go back to 3.1, you'd realize that this is the third time in just a handful of verses he's commanding the Philippians to have joy. So let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning and then jump in. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection. 
thank you for the church that has been purchased by his blood. We thank you so much for the word that is living and powerful. We ask this morning that it might do its work, that it would strengthen our hearts to have joy, that it would compel us and move us to embrace and hold on to Christ with arms of faith and with hearts filled with joy. Lord, do your work through the Spirit, we ask and plead. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just begin with this basic thought. Joy is commanded. If, if you are commanded to do something, to not do it or to neglect it would be called sin. Well, that's challenging, isn't it? Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's miserable. In fact, I would, I would assume that many of you struggle with anxiety and maybe even whether it's, it's a hormonal or, or biochemical in some way or perhaps just structurally in your DNA. Some of you have been granted the lifelong struggle with depression or anxiety or fears that cause you to despair, to be sorrowful in a way that sometimes you cannot get a hold of and you feel like you cannot crawl out of that hole. And yet, in the middle of that type of struggle, God's command does not skip you by. It's not as though you get a pass. The command is for you as well. Rejoice. Joy is not an option. It is not a possible pathway for Christians to choose. It is a necessary, commanded pathway that all Christians must choose. I will have a lot of Scripture citations because we're trying to build a theology of joy to understand the text here in Philippians. So let me, let me just start by taking back to chapter 1, verse 25. The Apostle Paul is suggesting that one of the primary reasons for which he does not die for which God leaves him alive, is for the Philippians' joy. And you can say, hey, I, I don't know if the Lord will let me die or if he'll keep me alive, but I'm pretty confident he'll keep me alive because it's really important for me to work for your joy. Joy is pretty important. Look with me in verse uh, 25 and 26. He says, I'm convinced of this and know that I will remain. He says, remain in, alive. I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy. If you were to read 2 Corinthians 1.24, he says something very similar. He says, we're not lording it over you in the faith, but we work with you for your joy. That's 2 Corinthians 1.24. Romans 14 would say this, For the kingdom of God is a matter not of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. Now, now as he defines the kingdom... He gives us three ingredients, and he says it's righteousness, peace, and joy. Why is it then we are so theologically bankrupt when it comes to a theology of joy? Why are we so negligent at pursuing it? Why are we so permissive of the joyless saint? Perhaps we fail to recognize that even the Apostle Paul sees this as apostolic commission, the stirring up of the church to joy. If you just read through the course of Philippians, he again and again calls the Philippians. For instance, in Philippians 2.18, he commands them. He says, likewise, you should be glad and command here, rejoice with me. He calls them not simply to rejoice, but he says, join me in this. Apostle Paul, who's in prison, chained, and unable to accomplish his ministry, says, I'm in a place of joy. And he's saying, come join me in this rejoicing. 
Philippians 3.1, rejoice in the Lord. He goes, it's not even trouble for me to tell you the same thing, but it's important for you. It's safe for you, he says. Romans 12.12 commands again, rejoice in hope. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. 2 Corinthians 13.11, finally, brothers, rejoice. 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Joy is a command, it is an essential, it is necessary, it is part of the bedrock of our Christian faith. If you don't have joy, you are a car on three wheels and something is being damaged in your Christian faith. You are living a crippled Christian life. This is why the Westminster Confession just simply says, or excuse me, the Westminster Catechism, first catechism, what is the sole duty of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to, I didn't say be miserable. Think about that. The center of our purpose and mission in life summarized by the Westminster Catechism is to have joy in God. Just sit and ponder for a second. What exactly has you sucking on lemons? Like. You have God. For what reason do you find sorrow in this life overwhelming that claim? You have God. He is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And if you ascend to heaven, he is there. And if you make your bed in hell, he declares, behold, I am there. He will never leave you. What in the world has got you down, Christian? Martin Lloyd-Jones says the Christian is not superficial in any sense. So let's be clear. When we talk about joy, we are not talking about superficial happiness. We are not talking about the effervescing happiness that happens at an eight-year-old's birthday party when he gets that toy that he's been longing for and two days later breaks. Because then all joy is gone. Frankly, when the sugar high of the chocolate cake is gone, so is happiness. Tears and sorrow even while holding the toy or present. Christian joy is a, is a virtue. It is not a mere transcendent state. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the Christian is not superficial in any sense, but is fundamentally serious and fundamentally happy. You see, the joy of the Christian is a holy joy. The happiness of a Christian is a serious happiness. It is a solemn joy. It is a holy joy. It is a serious happiness. So that though he is grave and sober-minded and serious, he is never cold and prohibitive. It is a serious joy. And I think by that he means it is held in deep theological commitments that cannot be blown away by the winds of suffering or the temporary sorrows of life. Christian, do you have joy? It's a command. I would also suggest to you, particularly in this text, that it's not merely a command, it is the cure for quitting. It's the cure for quitting. The author of Peanuts describes joy this way, or maybe defines joy this way. Joy is a warm puppy. <laughs> I thought that was deep. Martin Lloyd-Jones has nothing on him. Or maybe just in the Bobby McFerrin song, Don't Worry. And you know why you're to be happy? Because whether or not you don't have a gal that makes you happy or you can't pay tomorrow's rent and the landlord is going to evict you, 
it says these things will quickly pass away. There is a profound truth in that claim. But that is not why we have joy. Although it is interesting, even Bobby McFerrin commands happiness. Be happy. So what is, what is joy? And why then does it lead to a cure? I think it's a, it's a virtue. It's a holy affection of delight and pleasure that arises from our feelings, our intellects, and our determination to have joy. It's a delight. It's a pleasure. Joy is not something that is void of feeling. So perhaps you might think, I, I am going to be a Christian who follows my duty. God commands joy, and I'm just going to suck it up and be joyful. Does that make sense to any of you? That you can be joyful while being miserable? I don't think that's the point. I think joy necessarily includes the whole being, which means your emotions. You cannot be a joyful person while being a miserable human who doesn't like anything. Joy necessarily includes your emotions being aligned by what you know is scripturally true. That's your intellect. But it's also a commitment. It's an act of the will. It cannot be something that you let happen to you. It's a determination to seize joy by holding on to Christ. I want to take you to John 16 quickly. Just to help strengthen the point that joy is not, it's not affectionless duty. It is, it is an emotional part of the being that must be engaged. Jesus, illustrating what joy looks like, explains it something like when a mother gives birth. I think it's, it's helpful for us because if we spiritualize joy so much that Christians can have it while being miserable humans, then we've made joy something that Bible says it's not. Look with me in John 16, verse 16. Excuse me, verse 20. John 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And so he's speaking about this present world, and he's saying at a point in the future, there will be joy. And he explains it with this analogy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. In other words, she's going through labor pains. Not exactly a time in which you're feeling joyful. It's a time in which you're, you're, you're experiencing that sorrow. He says, after that time, when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, notice he's not talking about anything supremely spiritual. He's talking about the natural process by which a woman has labor then gives birth. Now, I want you just to imagine that lady in the hospital who's had her first child, and she looks at that baby. What feelings does she have? Certainly, she's not like, well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I did my duty, and now I have a baby. No, she experiences the feelings of joy. It's, it's, it inherently includes her feelings. Can you imagine the sorrow in that husband as he sees his wife joylessly, saying, well, this is my duty to have happiness, but doesn't actually feel happy? It's more than that. It's a Christian virtue. 
right? It includes our feelings. It includes our intellect. It is a choice. It is a deliberative decision of our will to pursue joy. And Jesus reminds his disciples, like that mother, he will return and there will be deep joy. It is the means by which we combat the poisons that are toxins to our faith. If we go back to Philippians in our minds, let me just recall to your attention Philippians 3.1, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, for me it is not a difficult thing to remind you again, but it is safe for you. Right? It's safe for you. And then he explains that the danger of legalism is combated with a confident joy in Christ. The danger of perfectionism. Then in verses 13 and 14 where it says, I have not achieved, I still pursue Christ. The dangers of perfectionism are combated with a devotion and a love and a joy in Christ. And then he says, some people have turned away and have become enemies of the cross because they loved this present world and their God is their own appetites. Worldliness consumptive living by saying everything I want is in this life is combated by joy in the Lord. So then he comes to chapter 4, verse 1. He says, so stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm and rejoice in the Lord always. I am confident that the antidote that many people need, which must be taken as a preparatory for trials, is joy in the Lord. The danger is as an antidote, as something that comes before the trial. We often don't see the necessity of it. We don't see the importance of it. We're doing fine. Obedience is easy. We're not in the middle of a trial. I love Jesus because life is good. We strip away the goodness of this life. And without that preparatory commitment to joy, you are powerless against the discouragement, the defeat that comes when all of a sudden life is difficult and suffering enters. Should then be no surprise that when we come to something like James 1, he says, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Or we come to Romans chapter 5, and, and we are again called to rejoice in trials. Are you feeling tired? Now, I guess you could take that two ways. Some of you might be very tired already in this sermon, and you're like, yeah. Not that tired. The tiredness of life, the tiredness of, of battling to do right, the tiredness of sticking with it, the tiredness of coming to church, the tiredness of working again and again, Sunday after Sunday, to serve God's people. Are you tired of ministry? Are you tired of trying to raise your children and just exhaustively committing to serve them? Are you tired, Christians? The solution is not a spiritual cup of coffee. The solution is to rejoice in the Lord. If the, if, if the strength and the horsepower of your ministry to others and your love for others and your duty in the Christian work is joy, then you'll find yourself recharged. If it's the gratitude of others, invariably they will not thank you enough. If it is the fruit of the ministry, what do you do when the Lord has given you a season of spiritual dryness and you don't see the fruit? If it is your feelings, what do you do when your feelings aren't getting in line and you're just a slave to your feelings? Maybe you've forgotten that joy is an act, it's a virtue that includes intellect and that determination to pursue. 
Are you ready for trials by cultivating a heart of joy? I do think, since many of you are early in your marriage or getting ready to get married, I think we're up to five engaged couples right now and some people circling in the airport. If you think your spouse will be the source of your joy, you'll strangle your marriage. You'll strangle your marriage. You'll break the back of your spouse because they cannot give you joy. Not like Christ. And our marriages are such sweet places of blessing that we could be tempted to put on them the hopes that they cannot carry. You will strangle your marriage if it carries the hope that it will produce joy. And if I could counteract that, if in fact your joy is in the Lord, then you bring into your marriage either a refreshing wind, a new energy, a joy that will often enliven your spouse to love you and will strengthen you when you feel like not loving your spouse. For some of you who struggle with depression and anxiety, this is always a little bit dicey because I do think some depression is sin, but some perhaps is hormonal, biochemical. There are ladies who struggle with depression after having a baby, and so they have this postpartum hormone dump that just afflicts their soul and makes it so easy to be discouraged. Some of you ladies are, are in an ongoing battle with this type of anxiety and depression that seems to just make joy like a vapor that vanishes as soon as you think you see it. Can I encourage you to combat the sorrows of life by pursuing joy? I think oftentimes we focus on getting rid of depression or we focus on getting rid of discouragement. Let us be people that pursue joy in the Lord. You can rejoice when discouraged. You can rejoice in the middle of suffering. You can rejoice when life is hard. You can rejoice when circumstances are against you. In fact, again, Paul being the example here is rejoicing in the middle of prison. So if life is hard and you tend towards a discouraged, depressive response to life, if you have within you kind of the the mechanical makeup that makes depression and sorrow an easy place to rest, If you find yourself in a place of depression, at the least you know you have the command to rejoice. And maybe that will be the doorway with which God lets you climb out of the cellar of depression. So, that would lead us to the third point here, right? There's a command, right, that, that we have joy. And so as we pursue a recognition of that command, recognize that Paul's framing it in the book of Philippians as a cure, as a cure to the, the, the easily drifting heart, the, the, the cure to the heart that tends to find satisfaction in this world or satisfaction in themselves or in what they do. So we must cultivate a heart of joy. We must cultivate it. There are certain things in life that don't need cultivation weeds. I was, I was driving a very busy road the other day. It was an off-ramp. And as I'm driving down the off-ramp, I noticed there are weeds right in the middle of the off-ramp, right in the middle of the road. I'm like, man, that's, these things are so impressive. Like, if you want it to grow, you can't get it to grow. But weeds, they will grow. 
joy, you must cultivate. Right? Sin is like a weed. It will occur whether or not you pursue it. If you don't pay attention, you will have lots of sin. Joy, on the other hand, you must cultivate. You must pursue it. This is why those commands rejoice in the Lord. Look at 1 Peter 4.13, or at least listen as I read it. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So joy can happen in parallel with injury and hurt, being a victim. Those things should not rob our joy. Or even the Apostle Paul says this of himself as he testifies in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. He says that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We often look up to the Apostle Paul. His ministry is just riddled with suffering. And yet he says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Let me just encourage you, one of the other proofs I think of of needing to cultivate it is the, the requirement that it's necessary for ministry with others. For instance, Romans 12, 15 says that we rejoice with those who rejoice. So I'm called to put on joy as a byproduct of your joy. I I interact with people, and they've just found out some great news, and I don't feel happy. I don't feel joyful at all. I'm I'm struggling with my own stuff, and I've got to immediately, to be obedient to this command, embrace joy for the sake of the celebrant. Like, do you want anyone coming to, to a wedding of someone you care about and love who's miserable and wants to show the world how much they hate life? Like, that, that's a person you're afraid to say, speak now or forever hold your peace. Because they will get up and share with you how much you shouldn't get married because of how bad their marriage is. No, we're called to, to have joy with those who rejoice, or, or 1 Corinthians similarly says, If one of your members suffer, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. For the sake of the body, you are called to partner with others in their joy. So we have things like baby showers and wedding showers, and you might feel a little bit of fatigue, and you're like, another one. Yeah, rejoice with those who rejoice. It's a biblical application. We don't do this because it feels good. We do this because as a body, we join with those who rejoice. And simultaneously, in the same week, the same day, maybe even after rejoicing with someone who's rejoicing, you visit someone else who's going through sorrowful moments, and you have to join them in sorrow. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. You must cultivate a heart of joy, or you cannot be equipped. You will borrow their depression and sorrow and not be any encouragement at all. And when you go to rejoice with those who rejoice, they will want you to leave the room because you have no joy. You must cultivate a heart of it if you're to be engaged within the body of Christ. But also add to this, as we try to cultivate it, as we pursue cultivating, it's a God-empowered joy. And this is where we start to get a little more hope that we can be joyful people. You guys remember the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Next one, joy. Yeah, I mean, it has prominence of place. The only 
virtue. Listed before it is love. And then we have joy. The fruit of the Spirit is, how do we know the Holy Spirit is within you? Because you have joy. Some of you look spiritless most of the time. Right? Love, joy, peace, gentleness. We could go on, but uh, the centrality of joy to the Christian faith cannot be overstated. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with joy. Where do you get your joy from? It is not from circumstances. It is a God-empowered virtue. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's God who fills us with joy. Or as the psalmist declares in Psalm 4, 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they who have their grain and wine abound. In other words, there is a type of human joy that's built on the temporary moment of blessing, the child at Christmas or on an eight-year-old birthday party. And then there's the joy that God gives that lasts through storms and grief and sorrows. As we talk about cultivating, I want to take you back to John chapter 15. One of the most perplexing sections for our modern culture that thinks that happiness is a byproduct of God loving us and then has a very uneasy conscience about how obedience fits in that dynamic, John 15 strikes a helpful correction. If you come to John 15, Jesus is this, this vine text where he says, abide in me and you'll bring forth fruit. I want you to go to verse 9 of John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Okay, so get this. Command. Do what? Abide in my love. Our natural question then to the Lord would be, well, how do I do that? Like, I want to abide in your love. He says, here's how you do it. This doesn't make any sense to us because he says what? How do you abide in God's love? Look again in the verse. If you keep my commandments. Well, that feels like totally wrong. Jesus has clearly made a mistake here. Right? Because commandments are miserable things. They're do's and don'ts. They're legalistic. Well, if you look at it like that, you, you do have a problem. But notice what he's saying. He's saying this is actually an expression of my love for you as I've given you commands. And as you, as you do these commands, you're actually living in sweet fellowship with me in obedience. This is what it means to dwell with Jesus Christ, that is to walk in fellowship with him and obedient to his commands. And we cultivate that through reading his words so we know his commands, we know his will, and we know him. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. He is, doing no, he is calling us to no less than what he does himself. If you're Christ-like, what are you going to do? Be obedient. Right? Like, I've obeyed the Father. Do you think Jesus did that because he was like a masochist who enjoyed pain? Or because he actually thought that this was good? The path of joy. He says, I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be what? How do you get fullness of joy? How do you get this joy that just 
invades every part of your life and manages your relationships and manages your responses and leads you back to Scripture and it fills your heart as you sing and as you pray. How do you get that joy that fills the cracks of your life? How do you get that joy? You walk in loving fellowship with Christ and do his word. And he gives you, he says, this is my joy. Right? Like, we get the Lord's gift of joy as we pursue him. You want joy, how do you get it? Pursue the Lord in loving obedience. Or you could say it this way. Pursue fellowship with the Lord because you love him and express that love in obedience. And the byproduct is joy. The fruit on that tree is fullness of joy. So if you're going to cultivate joy, and you must to be obedient, you cultivate your walk with the Lord, you cultivate your commitment to his word, not as this restrictive, necessary duty of, I must, but you pursue his word as a path to pleasing him because you love him, and it brings joy. And I wish I could be a dad who gave commands like that to my kids. But like, this is, this is good. This is how in life you will experience joy. Do what I say, and joy is coming. And sometimes I give commands because I'm a bum. Right, like, hey, go clean. Because I don't want to. I don't say the last part out loud. You know, like, you know, as parents, we don't always give commands that are good. That actually lead to the goodness of the person we give the commands to. And don't you feel that with like our government sometimes? Do you really trust them to give good laws that are good for you? I mean, sometimes their stuff our government does is just because they're punks. And God commands us to honor them anyway. And so we do, we honor them, but we know that that command does not come from a place of wisdom nor goodness nor wise management. I'm so glad God, God's commands lead to joy. Man, we, we have bought into the world's lives where we look at commands as stripping us of joy. God calls us to hard places. God calls us to endure suffering. But that should not jeopardize our joy. Count it all joy. We are suffering, but always rejoicing. Suffering and joy are non-identical twins from God. Right? He gives suffering. Right? The God who has granted you to believe has also granted you to suffer. Philippians 1. Okay, so as we're going through this, this verse, let me, let, me, let me tie these themes back to the verse. The command, rejoice, command. Why do we cultivate it? Because it's a command that is a command for how often? Rejoice in the Lord always. Good times, sorrowful times, medium times. Right? Like the highs, the lows, and everything in between. We are to do this always. There's 1 Thessalonians 5 says, rejoice always. <laughs> Very complex sentence. Let me diagram it for you. Rejoice. Always. 
right? It's, it's not complex. It's not easy. But we read that, we fly by, and it's like this massive imperative is two words long in English. So we come to this, and we say, how do we do this? And, and that's where we get to the center of joy. What is our center? What are our eyes on? Rejoice. No, no, now you're kidding. First, first Thessalonians, I want you to go back to Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord, right? In the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. So I think joy, especially the, the biblical concept of joy, is centered in the Lord. It's focused on the person and work of the Lord. So as, as you're trying to cultivate joy, let me just quickly uh, hit these, and I'll, I'll try to give some scripture text that, that strengthen the idea. We rejoice in the person of God. And I'm broadening that out because this is what Scripture says. In Psalm 16, 11, you make me to know the path of life. So let me just pause there. You make me to know the path of life presumes we're talking to a believer. Right? We're talking to someone who actually knows God. We're talking about joy, not happiness. We're not talking about a superficial possession of a delight. We're talking about an eternal possession of life, which means we have fellowship with the Lord. That means that we trust in Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins, that we have embraced him by faith and that he is king over us. Right, so, so he says, you make known to me the path of life. Do you have the life that Jesus alone gives? And if you don't, then joy it is, it's, it's like the carrot in front of the donkey. You might pursue it. You're never going to get it unless you have life from the Lord and you have the Lord who gives life. Okay, so we're talking about the person who has embraced Christ, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection, has the righteousness of Christ, and follows the kingship of Christ. That person then has promised this next line. You've made me to know the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. That sounds just like John. That's why Scripture is consistently calling us to recognize joy is for those who fellowship with the Lord. Our little son, every once in a while, gets scared and is our littlest one. Weather is one of his fears. He does not like rain. It's been a great year for us. Well, starting in November, he didn't like rain. Now he doesn't even know it. Man, he was afraid. You know where he wants to be when he's afraid? He wants to be with mom or dad. He wants to be held. So maybe we could say for him, like, in the presence of mom or dad is safety. So when he is feeling insecure, when he is feeling fearful, where does he run? To mom and dad at three in the morning. But God has made his presence accessible to you always. So there's never a time, never a moment at which you would have joy inaccessible. It's always accessible. His door is always open for you. It doesn't matter what you are going through in life. You can run into his presence because in his presence is fullness of joy. Why you're not living in his presence might need some inspection. We ought to live in his presence. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 95, 1 through 3, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God. And the king above all gods. 
The person of Christ alone should give you joy. Meditate on who he is. He's your king. He's your king. He is present with you. That should enliven your heart to joy. And his saving work should give us joy. Do you recall the angels coming to the hillside? I bring you good tidings. That's gospel. That's the word gospel. I bring you gospel of great joy. Like he didn't just bring the gospel as like this secret message. You know it. You believe in it. You trust in it. Do you rejoice in the gospel that has secured your salvation forever and always? Do you rejoice in a gospel of God who will never let you go? Do you rejoice in the gospel of God who's forgiven you and he knows you? The impressiveness of God should stun your heart. I forgive usually, but have you ever been wounded deeply and repetitively? It's hard to forgive again and again and again. Can you imagine knowing how many more times that person will sin against you that exact same way? And when they come to you and say, would you please forgive me, you're thinking of 120 more times in the next year and a quarter that they're going to do it. And you're like, no. You're do it again. So come to me after the 120th time, and then I'll do it. Forgiveness in ours would be petty, but forgiveness in God's heart and character is lavish, overflowing, and generous. Meditate on the gospel, and your joy will be strengthened. Psalm 32, David had sinned with Bathsheba. He ends that psalm, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Psalm 51, same context. He had sinned with Bathsheba. And he says, restore to me the joy of salvation. Jesus tells the disciples, don't rejoice that the demons obey you. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. What should cause you joy is not simply the person of God, the who, who God is, but that he saves you. You. If you know who you are, you should be stunned that God saves you. If we knew who we if, you, if we knew who you were, we wouldn't save you. Right? Like, that is true of all of us. If we could really see what you're thinking, if we really knew how you felt about us, if we really knew in the dark corners of your mind the way you think, we'd be terrified by you. We'd be horrified by the ugliness within. God loves you forever. Man, there's so much security in that, so much joy. How about simply the providence of God? Psalm 63, 7, you have by my help. In the shadow of your wing, I will sing for joy. Philippians 1, Paul's in prison. People are preaching to, to bring a harsher pain to Paul's current suffering. And he's like, yeah, but they're preaching. So I'm going to rejoice that they're preaching Christ. Are you rejoicing the providence of God? You're sitting in a dry auditorium on cushioned chairs. It's climate controlled in here. Just go back 500 years. You don't have climate control. It's probably leaky. Imagine just being here without a building. You guys remember not too many years ago, we didn't use our building very much. How would this Sunday have looked? 
I'm just so thankful for the providence of God. I'm thankful that eight years ago we were renting a school and that now we're in a building because when COVID happened, we would have been booted. Are you thankful for the providence of God that led someone to you who shared with you the good news of Jesus Christ? Are you thankful for the providence of God that has given you your children? Are you thankful for the providence of God that has given you the education of the people around you, your friends? And God's providence is so good. And when his providence frowns on you, it's still good. Do you rejoice in the Lord's providence? Even just creation. Oh Lord, you have made me glad by your work. The works of your hands cause me to sing for joy. If you were to read Psalm 95 through Psalm 100 again and again, you have that call to rejoice in the Lord. It talks about, I think it's the seas clapping. Like they're worshiping. Or you go to Job 38, where the sons of God, probably the angels, right, are singing for joy as God lays the foundation of the earth. Are you celebrating God? Are you rejoicing in just his marvelous creation? The next time you get in your car, which won't hopefully be too long from now, and you're driving home, and you see a very green Bakersfield, rejoice. And you think, wow, we have water in California. Rejoice. When you go to the ocean and it's massive, and were one tear to spring from God's eyes, it would drown all the oceans. Rejoice. He holds the world in his hands. Rejoice in our great God's work of creation. He's knit you together. Rejoice in God's creation. Our God is an amazing God. We're called to rejoice in the Lord. We're called to consider these things. John Calvin, in one of his sermons, writes this, There is not one blade of grass. There is no color in the world that was not intended to make you rejoice. Not one blade of grass. Not one color. Have you thought about that? God gave colors to the world just to bring you to joy in his work. The next time you bite into some good piece of pizza or you decide not to follow your diet and you have dessert you realize God has architected your taste buds for you to find joy in him and so we start meals oftentimes with saying something like God thank you for this food probably should add to that and for taste buds and for the eradication of COVID so we could actually know our taste buds work or whatever else you want to add to this. Think about what God is doing, though. He is, he is investing you with senses so that you can see and experience the people and the stuff of his world and know he's a glorious God so that knowing that, you step back and you say, God is great. And you have joy because of our great God. So then, when we rejoice in the Lord, when we cultivate that joy, 
when we obey the command to rejoice, we are building spiritual armor when Satan calls us to reject or stray from God. Because the source of joy, the joy giver, the one who empowers it, the one who has granted us great blessings spiritually and gifts of creation has done so for our joy. And so we pray in moments where we are committed to the Lord that his goodness would bind us to him. That our wandering hearts, so prone to wander, would wander no more. Rejoice in the Lord. It is a cure for hearts that wander. It is the foundation of steadfast Christian living. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for granting to us joy in Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen our church to have joy. It is so easy in this world to find the promises of a better president, the promises of a new child, promises of an upcoming marriage, the promises of graduation, of a good job. It is easy for us to put our confidence that these will give joy. And like the author of Ecclesiastes, we will quickly learn that this is a vain pursuit. These things do not actually secure for us joy unless we recognize that they are gifts from your good hand. You are the joy giver. Lord, bind our hearts to you. Help us to love you, to follow after you, and to never lose the joy that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has died for us. He loves us and shepherds us like a good shepherd. I ask that you would strengthen our joy in him. For his glory and for the sake of his name we pray. Amen.